People like you, organizations like Rave Check, I love you guys. You are clear for takeoff runway 21 left. Winds are calm. Stand by for the retrans on uniform. It's showtime. Welcome to another edition of the Ramp Check Podcast. I'm Tony. Oh, wait. Aaron and Ryan aren't here. Actually, uh, just an intro to a special edition of the Ramp Check Podcast. As you may have seen on our Instagram page recently, we've got a special edition of the podcast uh, with one of our favorite guests of the podcast, Air Force pilot Jay Durfler, call sign FAST, has uh, joined us for a, uh, a an amazing uh, about an hour and a half or so to relate some stories and uh, just just a great all-around guy. So without further ado, here's Fast on the Ram Check Podcast. Hey, we're on the phone with uh, our very good friend from Hill Air Force Base. Well, our podcast very good friend from Hill Air Force Base, uh, Jay Durfler, <laughs> yeah. uh, call sign Fast from the 388th Fighter Wing. How you doing, Jay? Doing great. Glad we could finally make this happen. Oh, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Uh, uh, if you guys remember, uh, back last June of uh, 2018, uh, we had the um, uh, privilege to meet Jay and his wife, and we actually interviewed them for the podcast. That was during the Warriors over the Wasatch Air Show at Hill Air Force Base. And uh, Jay is an F-35 pilot. Uh, for the uh, 388th Fighter Wing in, uh, at once again at Hill Air Force Base, Utah. And uh, so, Jay, you've been kind of a busy guy, huh? Yeah, it seems like I've been on the road quite a bit between work and vacation and whatnot. been all over the place. It's been good, though. I like, like being on the road and seeing new things. Now, on the road, now, did you change occupations or are you still flying? <laughs> <laughs> no, I still fly. Yeah. Uh, so going to Red Flag, I only got to fly a jet down there, and I actually had to drive back. So I guess you could say I had been on the road a little bit. <laughs> oh, you oh, man. did. You, you flew one down and then had to drive home. That's funny. Yeah. It got, it, it's fun being one of the experienced guys in the squadron, uh, but that tends to mean that you don't get all the flying that the young guys need. So. I got to fly oh, yeah. jet down and then had to drive back. All the young guys got to fly both ways. So after flying an F-35 down from uh, Hill Air Force Base to Nellis and then having to drive back, that must really suck because that would have really sucked for me. <laughs> it does. The only thing that's good about it is I can't listen to podcasts in the jet on the way down. That's the only thing. <laughs> Wait, what? Well, you you could, just not one of ours because it would be too long. Or... or- or legally, yeah. Yeah, we're, right. There we're, you yeah. Go. <laughs> we're still working with uh, the Air Force to see if we can make the Ram Check podcast the official podcast of... Uh, <laughs> no, we're not. I'm just kidding. Yeah, just get ACC yeah. to broadcast that on guard or something. That'd be great. Right, yeah, there you go. You monitor the old, um, uh, the old AM frequencies. We could put it up on yeah. there. So, yeah. so, speaking of that, I know this is kind of off the wall here but so it's not like iron eagle fast where you have a a cassette tape player in the cockpit and... on your lap <laughs> we, we uh the uh nations that went into building the f-35 decided against putting a cassette tape player in there um, okay. but <laughs> That's probably i would be lying idea. if i said that 
the ingenuity of pilots hasn't come into play. <laughs> and over my years of flying, there have been certain cables and splitters and stuff that have been designed to possibly play stuff. <laughs> okay. All right. That's Good funny. That's funny. That's awesome. So, so I'm, I'll, I'll jump in here, and I, I want to go a little bit further back with with fast here, and yeah, and kind of and and ask him exactly, um, you know, when when we talked to you a little bit at uh, at the air show at Hill Air Force Base last year, um, you'd mentioned that you're you're from Texas, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so what what got you into, I guess into the air force what what got your mind going what got you thinking about flying and why don't you kind of start from there and, and then you know the first aircraft that you flew and then um you know we'll just kind of go from there yeah um oh man that's reaching way back so <laughs> first interest in flying honestly i can like i have like this vivid memory of being over at some family friend's house uh Back in the 80s, they had just gotten like these new speakers and not surround sound, but some kind of sound system for their living room. Uh A brand new movie had just come out, which they were going to use to show off their speakers. And it was this movie called Top Gun. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was five years old. No joke. I remember being there. Uh, They turned that movie on and the sound was great. Their speakers were awesome, but the movie was a lot better and there was some about that movie i mean obviously the the cool aspects of flying the fighters and yeah um being the cool guy and whatnot but i think what really got my interest peaked initially was mm-hmm. the idea of like being the best of the best and doing something that not everybody got to do and the challenge that came along with that um, nice. nice and i think through as i got older and throughout my life i think it became more clear to me that I just had this drive to try the things that were difficult and to push myself and whatnot. So that was kind of when my, my interest in flying, uh, took hold. But to be honest, like I didn't even really consider the military for a long time throughout my, uh, throughout my childhood growing up. I didn't Uh really have much military influence. My grandfather spent a few years in the military during world war two. Another Mm -hmm. uncle of mine served in Vietnam four years, but, never really had that influence Mm -hmm. and then came time uh during my junior to in the senior year of high school uh where i had to start trying to figure out what i wanted to do with my life and i knew i wanted to go to college but my family didn't uh didn't really have the funds to send me off to college so i was trying to figure out a way to pay for it and Mm -hmm. then a real good buddy of mine who i hung out with in high school his dad was actually a retired colonel in the air force and I hadn't really talked to him much about it at all until the point that he started encouraging his son to apply for the Air Force Academy. Oh, wow. So just hanging out with him, uh, I was naturally privy to a few of their conversations. And at some point, I heard that, yeah, the Air Force will pay for your school at the Academy. And I was like, oh, well, that'd be awesome. And then they were talking yeah. about the potential to fly. And I, all of a sudden, it hit me. I was like, hold on this idea that I had of flying someday or being a fighter pilot or whatever it was in my mind at that point, I really thought it was one of those dreams that was just a dream. Like it wouldn't ever really happen. You know, like a lot of kids grow up thinking, Oh, it'd be awesome to be a professional 
baseball player, football player, but the actuality right. of that happening is pretty slim. And yeah, all of a sudden I thought, man, this could be a reality. So I started just picking his brain and asking him questions and uh, figuring out if that was a possibility for me. Um, so sure enough, I applied to the Air Force Academy and went through that whole process. And then I grew up a, a Texas A&M fan. So naturally <laughs> I had to apply to A&M as well. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, through that process, learned about the ROTC opportunities that were out there. So I ended up applying to the Air Force Academy and Texas A&M and an ROTC scholarship through there. And uh, luck have it. God bless me with the opportunity to go to both. I ended up getting a nomination to the Academy and an appointment to the Academy and also wow. got a ROTC scholarship uh, to go to A&M. Just my faith is, is real important to me. And I did a lot yeah. of praying about it and try to figure out where mm -hmm. uh, I was supposed to go and ended up deciding to go to A&M. <laughs> it's kind of funny whenever I, uh, my mom and dad being the good parents that they are wanted me to, make the decision I wanted and didn't want, me uh -huh. to, didn't want to force me to do anything. Um, and so of course they wanted me to go to the Academy. I mean, the opportunity yeah. there for Academy is huge. Right. And then right. I just, I finally made my decision to go to A&M and I remember walking into my parents' bedroom. My mom was ironing some clothes or something. And I was like, mom, I've decided I'm going to go to A&M. And she just like stopped, like froze. Yeah. ironing clothes. I thought she was going to burn a hole in the shirt or dress that she was ironing. <laughs> and she was like, she didn't even turn around. She said, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> we will support you with that. And you, you could tell that she wanted to say, why in the world are you not going yeah. to me? Uh, but from day one, seven foot at A&M, I knew it was where I was supposed to be. A lot of yeah. good came, came from it. Um, but yeah, so then the whole the whole idea of, okay, now I'm going to school. I know how I'm going to get my school paid for. And that was really what got me going down the military route from yeah. being at A&M and starting through ROTC really opened my eyes to the military and what it meant to serve and yeah. uh, be in an organization like that. And like I said earlier, I just didn't really have that influence, not having anybody in my family. Mm -hmm. um, so not having money to go to college is what got me to the military, but it was not long within the first year of me being there at A&M. Um, the military became something completely different to me and it yeah. became something that whether I was going to get to fly or not, whether they were paying for my school or not, I wanted to be a part of the military. Um, it's something, uh, which one of you have, have served? Uh, it was. It was Tony. Yeah, it was me, and, okay. and I. I just wanted to. Um, I wanted to interject here. I know exactly what you mean uh, when when you say that because, you know, I saw Top Gun too as or, well the first Top Gun, but anyway, I saw Top Gun <laughs> yeah. as well, and you know, decided that I'm you know going to go in, and uh, I went to the Air Force because I'm a terrible swimmer, and. I just decided that was it, you know, for me at the time. And I got yeah. in and, you know, now, now my basic training experience, I'm sure was, uh, was a hell of a lot different than, than your ROTC experience. And I know you've, you've sure. got to go yeah. through OCS and all that as well. So after making it through that first night that they call hell night, where you just have no idea 
which end is up and um, but I remember the the next morning when they took us out for uh, I guess it's Reverie right where you know in the morning where they raise the flag yep. and they play uh, morning Reverie anyway I remember just having this overwhelming sensation come over me and you know kind of tears welling up in my eyes and getting the chills and and I'm pretty sure it was not me missing my mommy and wanting to go back home. I'm pretty sure it was the just the patriotic feeling that I had. So yeah. I I can relate to, to what you're saying, Jay. It it was crazy. I I didn't expect it. I wasn't anticipating it. Uh, but it was very clear to me, like the idea of sacrificing for other people and knowing that in in some way, obviously not completely, mm-hmm. but in, at some degree at some level an entire nation mm-hmm. is depending on you for some things it's just it's such an honor um mm-hmm. so anyway it was just a really cool transition that i did not anticipate during my first year during rtc um my mind definitely shifted for why i was going to continue with the military some completely different got me into it but was what was going to keep me going was completely different. It was really cool. Yeah. Wow. Do I remember, um, do I remember from our interview, uh, at the, uh, at the air show that you had never even flown on an aircraft, uh, most of your life. Yeah. So that's what I was going to get to, uh, the second (laughs) half of your question, like first plane I flew and stuff. Yeah. Between our sophomore, junior year of college and ROTC is when they send us to, Field training is what they call it. Essentially, officer training school, but for ROTC cadets. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was going through, there were three different places that that happened. I actually don't remember all the places, but one of them was uh, Ellsworth Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. So, right. came, time came to for that to happen, and uh, of course, it had to fly up there. And then all of a sudden, it hit me. For some reason, I didn't really think about it until I was heading to the airport that. So the whole thing that got me real interested in joining the military was the opportunity to fly. And then I was about to get on the plane for the first time in my life. I had never been on an airplane <laughs> in my entire life until I was uh, 20 years old. Wow. <laughs> all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, what if I absolutely hate this? Now I'm stuck. <laughs> I have no idea what I want to do in the military besides fly. Like I don't, what, I, I was just super confused, super anxious. Um, but it was so funny just taxiing down the runway and all the anticipation that was building up and the, or taxiing to the runway and all the anticipation. And then mm-hmm. just rolling down the runway and lifting off. Like I can't describe it. It was just the coolest feeling ever. Um, yeah. But it, seeing <laughs> the trees get smaller and just climbing up in the air and seeing the clouds and everything from a different point of view. I just loved it. It was wow. amazing. Um, it was so cool. And I was, it was like this, also this like sense of relief, like, okay, good. I actually <laughs> yeah. like this thing that I've wanted to do since I was five years old. Um, yeah. So, awesome. But actually like a, an ironic uh, side story is that mm-hmm. technically wasn't my first time in an airplane. My first time in an airplane was when I was about six months old. Uh, mm. My mom's dad, my grandfather, lived in a small town uh, in Texas, but actually owned his own small little airport. He was a crop duster. 
Nice. Um, oh, that's cool. Grows up fields in southeast Texas and actually sold some Cessnas, was a Cessna dealer for a little while, but he passed away of cancer and stopped flying before I could ever, like, take advantage of the fact that my grandfather was a pilot. So my mm. first flight, technically, was when I was yeah. six years old, but don't, don't well, remember it's like a lot of you, you have pilot blood in, in you to begin with, so Top Gun or not, it sounds like you were going down that way. Anyway. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> and it's interesting, like, I've always had this fascination uh, with flying, and I never yeah. once had been in an aircraft. Um, I think I might have told you all this story, too maybe in the interview back at the air show, but, um, I don't know. I was probably 10 to 12 years old, something like that. And, um, my family used to take a trip down to the like Galveston, Corpus Christi area, the coast of, uh, Texas there on the Gulf. And I was fishing with my dad out on a pier and I still don't know, know what kind of jet it was. It was probably something out of, uh, Corpus Christi Naval air station, mm-hmm. Corpus Christi. So T-34, I don't know. Who knows? Uh, yeah. But something came down the coast, low level, and about where we were on the pier, just kind of climbed up almost straight vertical. And I don't oh, remember yeah. it, but my dad remembers me just looking at him and say, Dad, I'm going to do that one day. <laughs> oh, it's funny, cool. you know, like it wasn't one of those things that from a kid, I always said, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. But uh-huh. I just always had this thing in the back of my mind. I want to do that. Um, so my dad still tells that story all the time. Oh, wow. That's, that's awesome. That kind of gives me chills a little bit. That's, that's the av geek in me for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> that's great. It's awesome. I remember one other story. I remember, uh, we used to have this festival every year, like in the summer in the small town in Texas where I grew up. And, mm-hmm. uh, my dad and my mom would always have a food booth there. They would just like cook fajitas or barbecue or something to, raise money well it just happened i would always help out as a young kid i had just got my driver's license and it just happened to be the same weekend as the small air show uh, oh, wow. in my hometown in texas like tiny tiny air show uh but i remember asking my dad can i borrow your truck i want to go see something or do something well in my mind i had asked him to borrow the truck and go to the air show well i get <laughs> yeah. back and he's furious Cause he thought I was just going to like run to the gas station and get some. And I was gone for like three hours. I just oh, yeah. stole his truck and went to the air show just to watch planes as long as I could. But yeah, it was funny. It was just always this thing in the back of my mind that I knew I wanted to do someday. Just never thought, never yeah, thought wow. I'd be there. And so, and so when, when you finally got in the cockpit is something. Okay. And I assume just an engine, something. I, I and now I don't know what. I guess I should have studied up on this, but what what is a, a brand new Air Force pilot who's going through flight school? What does he start in? And then I assume you flew T thirty eights as well. Is is that right? Yeah. So when I was going through, so I joined the Air Force um, after college. Found out I got a slot to pilot training in college, which was a huge mm-hmm. deal. Oh um, yeah. And then when I went into the Air Force, um, technically, you're, if you have a slot to pilot training, you're actually on what we call casual status or you're, you're a casual lieutenant. And that's basically meaning 
you have nothing to do really. You have no job until you start pilot training, which can be just a matter of months or could be upwards of a year, just depending on oh, how wow. the classes line up. Okay. And so back when I was going through as a casual lieutenant, they could send you all over the world to any base really. Um, and then they would send you to your pilot training base. Well, I ended up, uh, there's kind of a connection to your last podcast whenever I was listening uh, to it and y'all were talking about F-117. So mm-hmm. I was actually assigned Holloman Air Force Base as a casual lieutenant back oh, in 2006 okay. when they still had the F-117 there. That's oh, wow. right, yeah. So at that point, they were transitioning uh, for from as a casual lieutenant the Air Force would pay for you to go to either like an aero club on base or some nearby airport and get your private pilot's license, like go through the whole process and get your private pilot's license. Uh, but they were transitioning from that to then sending all UPT or pilot training candidates down to Pueblo, Colorado, where they do, um, now all of a sudden I can't think of it, but basically they do uh pre-screening kind of down at Pueblo, Colorado for all guys going to UPT. And Hmm. so they were transitioning between those two syllabus syllabi basically. And so Mm -hmm. half the guys that were at Holloman Air Force Base with me as casual lieutenants went to Pueblo to do this up and coming new program. And then half of us stayed at Holloman and just did some training through the air club. So the first plane I actually flew, I stayed at Holloman and flew the P-41 which is essentially like a Cessna 172 with a little more horsepower on it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so that was the first, first time I had ever flown an airplane. Um, and I had no idea what to expect. I mean, it, it was awesome. Anything that had to do with flying was awesome because I had like zero experience. I didn't, it's yeah. all new. It's unlike anything else being in the air, filling the turbulence, bouncing around, seeing things from a totally different uh, perspective. It was all really, really cool. That's cool. Um, But what was unique about being casual there is that they had the F-117s there, and then they also had T-38s. There are several T-38s in the Air Force inventory that are painted black. A lot of those are stationed with the B-2s. Oh, yeah. They had some of them there at Holloman with F-117s, and they just used those for basically currency hours. So, guys couldn't fly the F-117 as much as they would like just because of the cost per hour to fly and how few they had. And so a lot of those guys were dual quality in the T-38. Um, But the T-38 as a two-seater, they had a lot of empty back seats when they would go fly. And so they would let us casual lieutenants just hop in the back seat, which was amazing. Yeah. So I went from Mm -hmm. getting uh, to fly on a commercial airliner to go to field training and then Essentially, my next flight was in the backseat of a T-38 on a four-ship low-level through the oh mountains. It <laughs> wow. was so wild. Like, I had no idea where anybody else was. All of a sudden, there'd be someone next, another aircraft oh, next to me, and then there wouldn't, and then I'd be upside down, and then I'd be, like, pulling a lot of Gs, and needless <laughs> to say, I got a little queasy on that flight. It was yeah. unreal. So so at this point, did, did you know that you were going to go into flying fighters, or, or, or are you not assigned to any specific aircraft type yet? No, no aircraft type yet at all. So okay. I'm waiting to go to pilot training, and then at pilot training, um, 
about halfway through when you're done with the second phase of power training is when you get what we call tracked. Uh, so you mm-hmm. would be tracked to T-38s or T-1s. So back when I went to pilot training, the initial aircraft was the T-37. Uh, sure. I was yeah, actually, the, the, the tweet. Yeah. Yeah, the tweet. <laughs> I was actually the last full uh, class of T-37. So they flew the T-37 at the three main pilot training bases, Laughlin, down in Del Rio, Texas, Vance in Enid, Oklahoma, and then Columbus Air Force Base in Columbus, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And then obviously they have Injet uh, in Texas too, which is multinational. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Of those three main bases, Columbus was the last one to fly T-37s, and I was the last full class of T-37s. They had one or two classes oh, after wow, me that cool. were like half T-37s, half T-6s. Yeah, I, so I got the wow. opportunity to fly the, the old tweet. Yeah, that thing is a peak. <laughs> I remember refueling. Flew. What's that? Oh, I was just going to say, I I worked at uh, Will Rogers Airport in Oklahoma City for a few years. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, refueled several of the tweets from Vance Air Force Base. So, yep. yeah, pretty familiar with Yeah, I'm sure they came through there all the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah they, kids would, I mean, think about it, like, Thousands of kids every year who had no clue how to fly are flying this thing and probably just beat it up, (laughs) overdoing it all the time. And, you know, that that plane could really spin like they do some spin training in the T6, the T37 replacement. But Mm -hmm. the T6 is designed. It can get out of a spin by itself without you doing anything. The T37, if you don't apply the correct procedures with the stick and rudder and um, depending on the direction and all the stuff that you have to do to get out of the spin, it would not get out of a spin. And so, oh, wow. um, that was a, that was an awesome challenge that it provided. And then the idea that we would go up in that thing to 25,000 feet and it was unpressurized. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, really? Unpressurized? Yeah. yeah. Wow. It was unbelievable. And while it was flying, it had the quickest G onset rate, uh, out of any plane in the Air Force inventory, out of any fighter, out of anything, and had the quickest G onset rate. Oh wow! Uh, in the T thirty seven. So <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So from Holloman, then I went to Columbus to go to pilot training. You start going through uh, pilot training uh, process there, a month or two of academics, and then you start in the second phase, which is actually flying. And then at the end of that, they they track you, um, and it's kind of your standard three things that the Air Force considers when they're giving you a next assignment or moving you on. It's mm-hmm. what you want has a play in into it. So everybody would say whether they wanted T-38s or T-1s and then what's available, uh, how many spots they have, and then also just needs of the Air Force. Like does the mm-hmm. Air Force need more fighter pilots? Do they need more heavy pilots? Whatever. So I was fortunate enough. I was able to attracted t-38 um so i at least knew i was going down the fighter bomber route yeah uh, but there was a unique kind of situation there where prior to that everyone who went t-38 majority got a fighter a couple guys got a bomber and then a couple would fate so be a first assignment instructor pilot uh, at pilot training i don't know how familiar familiar you are with that but Basically, they select some guys to come back and be instructors in the T6. And okay. then they, each base actually chooses two students 
per year, or at least it was the case when I was going through, to come back and be an instructor in the T38, which is an awesome opportunity because you're, you finish up pilot training and then you go right back and be an instructor in the advanced phase of pilot training, which is yeah, that's cool. cool. So yeah, I got selected cool. for 38. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, um, I had a friend I used to work the ramp with that I thought it was kind of interesting. The, the whole selection process, I guess you would call it. Um, he did like a Facebook live video and they, they have this, big get together with the families and the wives and they they do this production and then they call out their name they go and stand up there and then up on a projected screen it shows the aircraft they've been selected and then all their other guys come up running they're all like fist bumping and hugging for what they got um i just thought it was a, a neat thing to watch i never knew it was like kind of a production like that do you have a similar yeah, a, experience? Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge production. Uh, two nights throughout your pilot training experience are big like that. One is what we call track select. So that's the night where your entire pilot training class finds out where they're going next, T-38s, T-1s, or helicopters, or C-130s back in the day. We actually did a separate track for that too. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they, they bring everybody in the big, like, the big room of the officers club on base is where we did it. And literally hundreds of people are in there anywhere from friends and family to uh, guys in younger classes and piloting, because it's a big deal to them to see what uh, the guys who are older than yeah. them uh, in pilot training are getting just because they know some of those guys, but also too, it kind of gives them an idea of what they can expect because the number of T 38, because that was the most sought after thing. Um, varied from class to class because it it depended on what the air force needed and so as a young guy in pilot training you could kind of gauge what to expect for your class based on the classes before you and what they got and then obviously when guys went to t38 you would try to if that's where you wanted to go you would talk to them more and try to get an idea of what to do to kind of better your chances to go that Mm -hmm. route but yeah it was a huge huge deal that night i remember yeah, it was fun to watch. It was just, you know, just to hear you speak about it, but then actually see it. And it seemed like there were a lot of F-35s, a handful of F-22s, and I think one or two guys got, um, like you said, a bomber. And then um, there were a couple that got the assignment to be instructors in the T-6. So um, yeah. anyway, I just so, uh, I thought that was a yeah, so neat w- thing. W- with what Ryan just said and what Sass was talking about is, so when when you got, let's see, when you were selected for the T-38, that's what you said, right, Sass? Yep. You, you were selected yep. for T-38. And then at that time, there was still more training and more, I guess, selection for what you would actually transition into for duty, right? Or for operation or whatever yeah. the terminology would be, right? Yeah, so that first how, how, how did that go? So the that first one that I was just talking about is track select. Uh, okay. The process. other thing that you probably saw on Facebook Live was what we call assignment night or drop night. And so once you get selected to T-38s or T-1s or whatever, uh, then you're, I wouldn't say you're starting all over, but 
to some degree you are, and it's all about competition again. And because at the end of your training in those respective tracks as a class, as an entire class, you then come together for an assignment night and then every person within your class then gets told what aircraft they're going to go fly after pilot training. So, um, okay. Kind of the same thing happens again. It's based on what you want, what's available out there, like what jets mm-hmm. are available and then what the air force needs. And I was in a unique situation because I don't, I, so I graduated pilot training in, uh, early summer of 2008 and if uh y'all remember back to some of the news stories uh that were going on in the late 2007 early 2008 there were a bunch of issues with some of our jets i don't know if y'all remember there was a f-15c an eagle that uh had basically just broke in half while it was yeah yeah the whole nose the whole nose broke off right wasn't that an an oregon jet yep it was yeah yeah so that had just happened. Uh, they had just found some cracks in some wing spars, I think, of F-16s. They were finding yeah. issues in some of the Longerons and A-10s. I do so anyway, remember all, all that. A lot of our fighters uh, were just kind of all at once were having some issues. Well, what that did was basically made training for each one of those aircraft come to a screeching halt, which meant they had a backlog of people who had already been assigned to go train in those aircraft, but now couldn't train. And Mm. so people at pilot training who were getting assigned those aircraft were just stuck at their pilot training bases, waiting for that training pipeline to open back up. So in that process, all that was happening. I was seeing guys just hanging out, waiting to go off to their next training. And I was thinking, well, man, I don't want to sit around forever. I want to start flying right away after pilot training. So that's when yeah. I decided, you know what? I'm going to see if I can't get one of those two spots to be a T-38 instructor and get some more flying time uh, while mm-hmm. all my buddies are sitting around not doing anything and then go to a fighter later. I didn't really want to be a T-6. Uh, instructor pilot teaching brand new guys who have no mm-hmm. idea what's going on. Didn't really sound <laughs> that enticing to me, but yeah. I knew at least of the T thirty eight, they had proven themselves to some degree. And yeah. be, it was wasn't a fighter, but it was close to it as you could get. So yeah. Anyway, I ended up uh, putting that as my number one choice, and uh, God blessed me with the opportunity to do it. So I got to be one of the two guys that year that got to come back and be a T-38 instructor pilot. So um, it was funny. Uh, who was it that was talking about seeing the Facebook live video? Yeah, that was Ryan. Yeah. Um, it was funny. So at that, I don't know if you noticed, or maybe they still do this, I don't know, but at that big presentation or assignment night they usually take a couple minutes as an opportunity to basically roast each person in the training class i did see that yeah before uh and i don't know if i told you all this story last time but i'm a i'm a pretty competitive guy uh you could say that it has both helped and hurt me get to where i am today Um, but uh obviously pilot training is a big competition you know everybody's uh-huh. gunning for what they want and so your personalities uh shine through despite your best efforts so anyway i was known as one of the more competitive guys so at the roasting uh one of the roasting comments that they made about me i'll never forget based on my competitiveness is that uh 
They said, yeah, Jay is so competitive. He once lost a game of solitaire and didn't talk to himself for three days. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So anyway. Uh, in my college oh, training class, uh, yeah. we actually only had one fighter drop. We had one F-16 uh, drop to a guy, and then I got T-38s and mm-hmm. hung out there. I've been instructed T-38 for a couple years. It's actually a three-year assignment. Uh, love the T-38. It's a very, very challenging aircraft to fly. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I can imagine. Pretty, it, it has no wingspan. <laughs> yeah, like no wing loading at all. Uh, pretty underpowered considering the size of its wings. Mm-hmm. Um, you're very close to... Uh, to stalling the aircraft every time you're coming in for landing and mm-hmm. uh it's just a very challenging aircraft to fly and i think i wasn't thinking about this at the time but um it made me a much better pilot flying that thing for a couple of years and then not only flying that but being an instructor uh is a whole totally different thing you know it's one thing yeah. to if you're doing something being able to correct something that you just did wrong but uh-huh. then as an instructor having to anticipate all the many things that your student could do wrong mm-hmm. um, and being able to interact at the appropriate time and this is what was really cool to me and I, what I think kind of makes a good instructor from a meteor, mediocre uh, instructor is knowing mm-hmm. when to interact at a point at which you don't endanger your life or theirs, but also letting them go so far that they still learn from their mistakes. Yeah, I imagine there's like a really fine line for that. There really is. I mean, think about like raising a kid or something, you know, like you could helicopter parent the heck out of them and make sure they never get in a situation where they're going to hurt themselves, but then they Mm -hmm. also never learn and they never grow. And so you could also let them go too far and then something really bad happens. So Mm -hmm. I think the combination of that and the T-38 and how difficult it is to fly really paid huge dividends for me that I didn't realize at the time uh, that I've seen now have been uh, huge. Well, and unlike, so I, uh, unlike a T-37 where you're side by side and you can see what the other pilot's doing, in T-38, you're forward and back from each other. So that's got to be even more exactly. challenging. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember... Yeah, it is. I remember... Uh, flights as a student in the T-37 where uh, uh, those of you who have had flying experience before, when you're first learning how to fly, you think all the information you need is inside the cockpit of the plane that you're flying. But a lot of times, if you just look outside, it's a lot easier to fly. Uh, But that's a hard concept to understand when you're just learning because you think all the gauges and instruments are telling you everything you need to know. And I remember an instructor in the T-37 he he was telling me, you got to look outside. You got to look outside. Uh, <laughs> and so I tried to trick him by like turning my head as if I was looking outside, but then my eyes were like in the corner of my, <laughs> of my eyes, like looking at the instruments, but because he was sitting right next to me, he could see yeah. right through the visor. <laughs> and, uh, he hit me upside the head and then covered the instruments. And he said, I told you to look outside. You can't fool me. Uh, <laughs> But then in the T-38, you really can't. Like, you get, in the yeah. T-38, you just got to get an idea. of You can watch the stick in the back seat, and 
watch yeah. the throttle in the back seat and it moves whenever he's moving it and so you can do your best to to figure it out but yeah it's a totally different experience being in essentially a different cockpit than he is yeah and 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 the t38 it, it's a supersonic trainer correct like did they yeah does the air force still allow it to fly supersonic so when i was going through they did not Okay, so so you did not break the sound barrier in T-38, because I was actually going to ask you what that would have been like, you know, what what was that like the first time that you broke the sound barrier, but I guess it was not in a T-38. No, it wasn't. It was in an F-16. Okay. Uh, in right. Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so before, like, actually really close to about the time I was going through pilot training, they used to have in T-38, in, during T-38 training, they'd have what they called a boom flight. And okay. Basically, it was this flight designed to allow the student uh, to go supersonic for the first time. They, uh, before I got a pilot training, decide, decided it wasn't worth the fuel and uh, the time to dedicate an entire flight to it. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, but I got as close <laughs> as I could uh, yeah. without doing it. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. You know, like in the T thirty eight with the with the small wings, like you couldn't yeah. have much G loading. I mean it could I think I think it was limited to about seven or seven and a half G's, but when mm-hmm. you're pulling a lot of G's in that jet, it just bleeds off airspeed so quickly because of the small wings and so mm-hmm. oh, to do yeah. aerobatic maneuvers in the T thirty eight, you would have to start a, a loop at 500 knots indicated, and it took about eight to 10,000 feet of altitude above you to complete the loop. Because if you oh, tried gosh. to, yeah, if you tried so to make it, it makes you, smaller. Yeah, it makes you wonder how the Thunderbirds through the, through the teeth. I know, years. it blows my mind how oh, in the world wow. did that. Flying fingertip in the T-38 is just, it's very, very difficult. So that the fact that the Thunderbirds flew that is, is crazy. <laughs> yes. um, but in the T-38, you get going 500 knots and you start doing this massive loop. And then if you don't finesse the pull through the bottom of the loop just right, you can get going real quick in a hurry if you're not paying attention. And so there were yeah. several times, whether I was at the controls or student was at the controls, that we may have come really close to just <laughs> over breaking the sound barrier over a populated area. Who knows? <laughs> Everybody thought it was just a thunderstorm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, okay, so T-38, where do you go from there, Fast? And um, do, do I recall from our last conversation something about flying C-12s or something? Or was yeah. that? Okay. So yeah, that, so that was actually when I was at base. Okay. Um, so the NC-12 came out. Um, okay. The Air Force basically found the need over in Iraq and Afghanistan for another ISR platform, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they came up with the idea of this MC 12. And so they bought a couple C 12s literally like off the civilian market um, and retrofitted with a bunch of equipment, some, a camera and some other mm-hmm. equipment in the back uh, to do its mission. Anyway. So it wasn't like, like, a standard fighter aircraft or a cargo aircraft, people after pilot training go to that aircraft and that's generally what they fly the rest of their career. But the MC-12 was so new, they didn't really have that yet. And so they would just pull pilots from all different career fields to fill 
to fill those spots flying in C-12s. Um, but with pilot training, a lot of the instructor pilots that go there, mm-hmm. they volunteer to be instructors at pilot training. One, because they want to instruct young kids because it's a really cool opportunity. But two, the life is a lot better. You you don't get deployed. You're not going to mm-hmm. combat. You're, it's a okay. stable lifestyle. Well, then they started dropping these MC-12s and they started sending uh, pilots from pilot training to go fly them. Well, none of the instructor pilots uh, who had come from other aircraft wanted to do that. That's why they went to be an instructor so they wouldn't have to. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I can't remember who it was, but one of the fates, another first-time instructor pilot there was like, well, hey, us, all of us fates, we're pilots. Like, can we go? Uh, but it was so new, they didn't really know, like, because you just go straight to combat pretty much after a little bit of training. Well, sure enough, some general signed off on it. And once that became a thing, I volunteered right away. The idea of getting to go to combat um, yeah, really. was awesome. Um, well, I wasn't dropping bombs or shooting a gun or anything like that. Uh, just the idea of going and seeing that uh, intrigued me. So the FAPE assignment was three years, but about two years in, I volunteered for one of those MC-12s and, uh, got to go to Afghanistan, uh, and fly that thing. The weird thing about the MC 12 is, um, they needed pilots in combat, uh, in country like now, like super quick. And so Mm -hmm. they sent all the pilots who were going to go through training to, uh, flight safety international in Atlanta, uh, to get some simulator training on C 12s done. Um, and so we actually got like a type rating in the C 12 and whatnot, uh, there in Atlanta. But then we went to Meridian, Mississippi is where they had the training when I was going through. And you got 12 flights in the actual plane. And then your 13th flight was in combat over in <laughs> in Iraq. Naturally, oh, wow. the number 13. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course, they probably planned it like that. And, yeah, you know. Right. But, um, I mean, go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead. Go ahead. But I was just going to say, it was nuts. I mean, like, Four months prior, I was teaching a kid how to do a TP stall out in the airspace and then come back and land without flaps in a T-38. And then four months later, I'm like, literally my second mission in combat was in the middle of the night. There was a troops in contact situation. They were sending in a couple of helicopters to rescue the wounded. The helicopters were taking effective fire as they're getting in and I'm having to coordinate for other ground personnel and the helicopters and the landing zone and all that. It was just wild. That wow. Within Jeez. four to five months, uh, the difference in the flying that I was doing, it was still flying, but yeah. Um, that's one thing about the air force that or military flying. It's just so much different than civilian. It's like the flying part of it is, it has to be second nature because there's so much other things that you're doing or thinking yeah. about uh, while you're flying. And I didn't really understand that being an instructor pilot uh, mm-hmm. until I got over there and, and realized what's going on. So it was a great experience. I flew my tail off over there though. Uh, wow. I was there for six months and flew 690 combat hours in six months. Wow. Oh, <laughs> wow. yeah. They needed I, you guys fast. <laughs> yeah. Very. I, <laughs> no pun intended. typical schedule over there, we would fly anywhere from 8 to 12 days in a row, mm-hmm. and sit for one day and do some other job in the squadron, 
at just not flying and then go uh-huh. back to flying eight to 12 days in a row and did that oh straight, my gosh. straight. Yeah. And, and wow. It was awesome. I got a lot of experience. And I don't know if I missed this part. In which aircraft was that? The F- it was the, the MC-12. The MC-12. Oh, that was no, the, the M- Okay, we were still on that one. Yeah. Okay. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So that was back in 2011 when I did that. Oh, in okay. Afghanistan. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow. And and for those listening that don't know what an MC-12 is and you haven't looked it up, it's basically a militarized version of a King Air. Yep, King Air 350. Um, we were yeah. flying the ER version, the extended range version. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. my favorite aircraft to fuel. I was going to say one of my favorite <laughs> aircrafts to fuel as well. So. Yeah, what was that? Uh, uh, all the overwing. Did, did the... Did the uh, the MC-12, did that have single-point fueling or overwing fueling fast? Oh, man, that's a good question. That's been so long ago. Uh, yeah, I so, want to say overwing, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, prob- probably overwing because we all worked it. the ramp. <laughs> we all worked the ramp at one point, yeah. and we've all fueled King Airs at one point, and, and they are a pain because they're all yeah. overwing. you got to get up on the ladder, and you got to position uh, yep, those. Yep. So, yeah, those, those were a blast. Keep yeah. the hose off the rubber boots on the leading edge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really. Exactly. That's funny. Um, so did, um, before we go into the next aircraft that, that you got into, yeah. did you ha- at what point did you get your call sign fast? So kind of the call sign story within the Air Force, you basically, it's more of a fighter squadron thing. Okay. Uh, some bomber squadrons do it, but very few heavy squadrons do it, at least to the level that we do in fighter squadrons. Um, so that being said, I didn't get fast until my first fighter squadron, which was F-16s. Okay. That being said, I, um, I got a call sign in T-38. So since T-38s is kind of a precursor to fighters, you see mm-hmm. a lot of similarities between fighter squadrons and T-38 squadrons because they're prepping young men and women to go fly fighters at every level. So not just flying the jet, but Mm -hmm. the attitude of a fighter pilot, the idea of dropping bombs and potentially killing people and blowing up things and the camaraderie Mm -hmm. and the idea that you might not go come home alive and all that stuff that goes with being a fighter pilot. They're trying to instill that into um, young pilots when they're super young. So we try to align a T-38 squadron as much as we can to a fighter squadron. So I got a call sign there, but you don't really get a call sign that sticks with you until your first uh, actual fighter squadron. So I had a different call sign. I was actually known as Notch for a long time. Yeah, Notch. (laughs) Uh, Kind of a long story about that. We'll just say that um, I kept it, I kept it pretty clean as a young T-38 instructor and I never really <laughs> showed up on the radar that much. And so they didn't really have much on me, which I guess is a good thing, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So I was known as Notch, uh, up until, um, my first fighter squadron, which was the 421st fighter squadron flying F-16s here at Hill. Oh, that's, that's so that's awesome. So, so MC-12s then to F-16s. Is that right? Yeah, so, Yep, so I finished MC-12, go back to Columbus. I'm a T-38 instructor for a couple more months uh, before I'm ready to start training uh, in F-16. So then as a FAPE, you kind of go into that same pool of assignments, and I was fortunate enough to get a F-16. Funny enough, uh, as a FAPE, I told my squadron commander way back then, he said, you know, what do you want to do after this? And 
that's about the time people started talking about the F-35 and, and mm-hmm. well, I want to be one of the first F-35 pilots. And he's basically like, okay, what do you really want to do? Cause that's not, <laughs> uh, but it's funny cause that same kind of interaction, uh, would happen late, much later in my career. But anyway, Vipers is where I wanted to go uh, after mm-hmm. that. And so went to training at Luke Air Force Base for F-16s. Um, it it was a blast. It was so it was so fun learning to fly that jet. You know, in pilot training, I ended up I soloed the T thirty seven, soloed the T thirty eight. Both mm-hmm. of those were crazy experiences. Um, but it's just there's something different about getting in a real fighter. Yeah, I would that much thrust and that much capability, um, and taking it up by yourself. It, it's oh. just, I'll never forget my first takeoff in the F-16 solo. Um, mm. It's funny, like, in every aircraft, the first time you take it solo, you yeah. cannot convince yourself that you're not missing something. It does not matter how many times you go over the checklist. <laughs> it does not matter how many times you look at the switches to make sure they're in the right spot. You always <laughs> yeah. trust yourself. And then when you're taking off in a $30 million jet like the F-16, it's yeah. a whole different story. But in the F-16, you know, it's fly-by-wire. Up until that point, I hadn't flown fly-by-wire. Um, oh, wow, yeah, I guess that's true, huh? And yeah. It, yeah, and it's a side stick, which is completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. But I just remember, and this wasn't my first solo, it's my first takeoff in the F-16, though. I remember I had flown the simulator. You get, I don't know, probably about 15 to 20 simulator flights before you actually get in the jet just to work out all the emergency procedures and stuff, but... Mm-hmm. It's nothing like flying the real jet. And I remember people telling me, you know, when you get your first flight in F-16, you'll just think about turning or doing something, and the jet will do it. Um, the F-16 is a fighter pilot's jet, man. I mean, oh. sitting out there on the front of the nose with that bubble canopy, yeah. it really feels like you're on the end of a rocket ship. And then the fly-by-wire and the uh, incline or decline seat, like it really feels like you're uh-huh. just sitting in a recliner back at home playing like some video game. Like <laughs> it is just unreal. So I remember taking off and wow. I'm number two in a formation and my flight lead is turning out of traffic, heading out to the airspace. And it was almost like I just looked at him and thought, okay, I need to start going that direction. And next thing I know, the jet's just moving uh, there because that stick is so sensitive. Um, you know, the pressure sensitive stick and the fly by wire, it's just, uh-huh. it's so natural flying that thing. So you um, just bar- barely move that and, and you're just, just barely, yeah. wow. uh, the first block, first models of the F-16, the engineers actually designed no movement at all within the stick. Like the stick literally wouldn't move. It would just sense pressure. And oh, uh, wow. the test pilots were like, Oh yeah, Dude, you've got to give us some movement because <laughs> like it's, plays tricks on your mind you know if this stick yeah. doesn't move it like doesn't it doesn't feel right so anyway uh they ended up putting about a quarter inch of travel in each direction of the stick so that's all that stick moves wow. about a quarter inch in each direction oh, yeah that's, that's interesting. it's crazy i had no idea about that yeah, yeah. So you either. just think about turning a direction and you're you're putting pressure on the stick without even realizing it. You just start turning. It's awesome. It's a, it's a fun aircraft to watch when you, whenever you see like the Thunderbirds, one of the thing that comes to mind is how precise and deliberate the movements are. They're just so quick and stop quick and stop. And it's just, it's really fun to watch. Yeah. 
It, it was an awesome jet to fly. I loved it. Ooh, um, wow. And how, how long, uh, how long were you in the F-16 for? And it was all, it was all, uh, out of Hill Air Force Base, right? After yep, you did so, pilot training at Luke in Arizona. Yeah. So I did F-16 training at Luke for about 10 months or so. And then my first, uh, operational assignment was at Hill. Uh, joined the okay. 421st Fighter Squadron there at Hill, the Black Widows. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. But I actually was have, I have, I have a Black Widow patch from, geez, I don't even know how many years ago. Oh, really? F-16 pilots. Yeah. I've, no. We've, we've got some cool old 388 fighter wing patches and some, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. We'll have to show them to you sometime. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, did, did you, um, did you fly combat in the F-16? Yeah, so shortly after getting to Hill, we did a TSP, a theater security package, basically where just a, a unit will go to an area uh, just to kind of show a presence. And so we did that mm-hmm. in South Korea. So that was my first, I guess you could say, deployment in the F-16. Mm-hmm. It wasn't combat, but we went over there for a while. And then, uh, as you all know, I'm sure, the F-16s have been around at Hill for a long, long time. Yeah, um, a long have time. a huge history here. Well, their last combat deployment was back in uh, 2016, end of 15, end of 16, uh, and that was the Black Widow. So I was fortunate enough to get to go on the last F-16 oh, combat cool. deployment from Hill. Yeah, really awesome. cool history. Man, that's, that's um, pretty neat. Went back to Afghanistan again. Yeah, it was really cool. It, um, you know, before we went, it had already been decided that Hill was getting F-35s and Everybody mm-hmm. was getting excited about that, but, you know, it's really cool. It's, there's something to be said about um, finishing up the legacy of an aircraft at a base, especially one that, that has had such an impact. Yeah. Still has. I mean, they had the first operational F-16s yep. over 30 years ago. and Yeah, they replaced F-105s. That's yeah. how long ago it was. That's yeah, crazy. I mean, my uh, uncle uh, flew F-16s here back in the early 80s. It's just crazy oh, to wow, think about really? the history. Yeah. So getting to be a part of that last combat deployment uh, was pretty special. Went back yeah, out to Afghanistan is. for that. And that was fly. Afghanistan, you said? Yeah, and it was yeah. it was kind of interesting to see the difference uh, from being there in 2011 to being there five years later in 2015 mm-hmm. into 16. The war had changed a lot, and mm-hmm. our objectives had changed a lot from – uh, now kind of training and equipping equipping yeah. Afghanistan army and stuff, but <laughs> your, um, your, your speed and altitude changed quite a bit too. Very different, <laughs> like completely different perspective. Like I was yeah. taken off with a couple thousand pounds of bombs every time and a couple missiles and, uh-huh. uh, doing combat takeoffs where we're accelerating the over 400 knots, a couple hundred feet above the ground. And then pretty oh, sure wow. that it was just, completely different and of course being by myself the mc12 is a crew of four yeah um, so now just being by myself flying six hour missions by myself in that cockpit at night on night vision goggles and stuff completely different um and now like like carrying those bombs and understanding the responsibility that goes with that and mm-hmm. uh, knowing that if i release one of those off my jet on the other end is is not good stuff and that could either yeah. happen to people who arguably deserve it or not or friendly mm-hmm. people and so mm-hmm. um it was a huge kind of mind shift i would say 
um, and a totally different perspective on it. I remember in mm-hmm. 2012 being there for the first time. Um, I really felt like I was doing what I was supposed to do in the military. Like I was mm-hmm. in combat and I was, sac- I mean, I lived in a room that was designed for four with six people in a building of 42 total people with two toilets and rarely had hot water and not eating the best of food. And like, I, I really felt like for the first time, you know, like this is, this is what I like about the opportunity to Uh serve in the military is that I'm actually sacrificing now, but it was, it was that again, but a totally different, um, like line of thinking or rationalizing Mm -hmm. or I don't know, just kind of feeling my is it because like you were saying, you know, what you were doing was, you know, whether somebody deserved it or not, you were in a combat zone and those bombs were going to destroy something. And it's, it's, was it kind of, was it the reality that that's exactly what was happening or was it, do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> Yes, it was that. Um, like before in the MC12, I would definitely play a part in that role of making mm-hmm. sure the good guys were protected, even if yeah. the bad guys uh, got hurt. But mm-hmm. now I'm, the, I was kind of the one that was going to make that happen. Um, mm-hmm. And there's something about hitting that red button or pulling that red trigger trigger on the the stick of your aircraft, knowing that when you do, you can't take it back. I mean, that bomb yeah. is falling or that bullet is flying out to something. Um, and just ensuring one, that it's going to the right place and that it's going there for the right reasons. It's uh yeah, it's a very humbling experience. Mm. It really is. You could imagine. Um, the, imagine. Yeah. The first time I employed in combat and maybe the whole story is for another podcast, but, um, I went out on a mission, not expecting a whole lot. And the first call I got from the guy on the ground was uh, that the other JTAC had uh, just been shot in the head and um, was down. And that the rest of the good guys were surrounded and we were essentially their only hope. And so feeling that level of responsibility uh, is one thing, but it was amazing to me reflecting on it afterwards. I didn't. Clearly, I didn't think about this in the heat of the moment, but I, my training just kicked in. Like I can't even describe, like, I don't, I didn't think of it as a situation uh, to the magnitude that it was other than Mm -hmm. I needed to do what I had been trained to do up until that point. And I didn't even have to think about it. It was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Um, And the mission ended up being a success, but uh, it was after that mission, my first time to employ weapons in combat that, um, and good guys' lives were saved because of it, that um, all the training, like everything that I it, had experienced up until that point, whether it was pilot training or being an instructor pilot there, my MC-12 experience, um, it just was like a realization that all of that mattered. And mm-hmm. I'm so happy that I got the training that I did. And um, it was another level of realizing the honor that I have to serve in the military and do those things, you know? Um, yeah. It was, it was really cool. 
Oh, wow. Pretty amazing (laughs) story. Yeah, I'd love to hear the whole story, actually, uh, um, on another podcast for sure. So, and then, uh, Aaron, go ahead and ask your next question there. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, so um, incredible stories there. And then at what point did you know you were going to the fifth generation F-35 Lightning II? Yeah, so that's... uh, a funny story too, kind of like I was alluding to earlier about being told, no, that's never going to happen. So <laughs> yeah, Hill found out F-35s were, uh, were coming to Hill as the first operational base. Which we were all just ecstatic about. We oh, were so yeah. happy to I'm hear sure. that just being residents mm-hmm. of the state of Utah. Yeah. Uh, so us as F-16 pilots, we're all like, well, does that mean we get to fly it? You know, what does that mean for us? And they initially told us, well, just a couple of you will be selected to transition over to the F-35. Mm-hmm. Um, and so initially three were selected um, based on my age. They wanted some younger guys, so I didn't get selected. But then word came out a few months before I actually went to Afghanistan in the F-16 that a couple more spots may be available. And so... Whether I got to go to the F-35 or not, my time here at Hill was coming to an end. And after the deployment, I knew I was going to be off to a new assignment. And so my mm-hmm. squadron commander at the time asked me, you know, what do you want to do after this? We need to start thinking about it so we can work a next assignment. And, of course, I said, well, I want to stay here in the F-35. And he said, well, yeah, you and everybody else here, uh, but <laughs> you, were, you were too old and that's not going to happen. Uh, hmm. And so I said, okay, well, I'll think about some other things. Well, then it got kind of closer to the deadline to submit my request. Mm-hmm. Had, had a little time still, but he was like, all right, fast. You know, we got to keep, uh, we got to figure this out. Uh, I know you've been thinking about it. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to stay here and fly the F-35. <laughs> and he said, fast, that's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, well, so how, how, you really old were you? how old well, were you at that point? It wasn't necessarily age, but I mean, I... Let's see. That was about three. I was about 33 years old. Okay. What what they were trying to do when the F-22 came out, they pulled super experienced guys from a lot of different aircraft to fly the F-22 because it was the latest and greatest. Uh But what that ended up doing is creating a gap. Once those, all those old guys, it was time to get out of the air force. Then they had this huge gap in experience because they selected Uh all guys at the same age who were super experienced. And so they were trying to not do that again with F-35. And so they were trying to get very young people who are experienced enough. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that I was like super old, but they wanted some younger guys initially. Okay, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that was like a week before my requests were due. And then it finally came time where I had to like submit my stuff. Um, he said, all right, fastest time. What are you going to put in there? And I said, well, I want to be a 35 pilot here at Bill Air Force. He was like, shut up. You're not going to do it. You're too old. I've asked the question. It's not going to happen. That was like on a Thursday. I was like, okay, well, this is what I want to do instead. I want to try to get to the F-35 as soon as I can. So whatever assignments will kind of help me do that. And he's like, okay, we'll see what we can do. Yeah. And then that Saturday around lunchtime, squadron commander never called me on my cell phone on the weekend, but he called me. Um, and I answered and he was like, Hey, fast. Uh, I'm just curious. Do you still want to stay here and fly the F-35? I was like, are you like, I wanted to, I mean, he's my boss, so I can't keep <laughs> yeah. with him, but I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I've been telling you this. I was like, yes, sir. I do want to stay here still. And he said, well, 
some things have changed. We might uh, be able to work some stuff, might be able to get some older people in the jet and your name came up in discussion. But before I kind of started pushing for that, I want to make sure you're still good with it. I was like, yes, I am still good with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why are you still on the phone with me? Get, yeah, yeah, exactly. Get, why did you bother calling me? You better not have missed that opportunity. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, he was like, okay, I'll let you know. So go to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, nothing. Just waiting for him to tell me something. Nothing ever happens. Then he calls me into his office on Thursday and starts the conversation about normal office work, needing me to do stuff for him. And I thought it was going to be a conversation about, you know, the F-35. And it just wasn't for a good 20, 30 minutes. And it's like, okay, that's all. And I was so disappointed. I was about to get up. He was like, oh, yeah, one more thing. Uh, you got selected to stay here and fly that. Oh, oh, I was like, what are you kidding yes. me? He was just best he it was it was awesome to stay oh, um, cool. That was about a month before he went to Afghanistan. I found out. Um, he said, oh, but wow. you got selected, but you're still coming to combat with us because you're one of the experienced instructor pilots in our squadron, and we need you there. So you'll go to F-35 training when you get back. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, Sweet. it was awesome. So I kind of got the best of both worlds. I got to go on the last combat deployment with F-16s, and then I got back in May of 2016 from Afghanistan, and within a month I was at Luke again in Arizona learning how to fly the F-35. Well, I'm just going to say fast, you must be living right, man. <laughs> yeah. Dude, yes. God, God has looked out for me for sure. Uh, there's, yeah. So yeah. many deserving people out there, uh, especially here at Hill when all that was going down. Um, so to hear a couple no's and then finally get the yes, it was it was awesome. It was really cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. And and so obviously you're you're currently flying the F thirty five and the A model because there's a lot of app geeks that listen to us that yeah you know they're A B and C you know you got a different different Absolutely. anyway yeah. I can't speak but um. So the A model, which is the uh, the model for the Air Force, the conventional takeoff and landing version yep. of the F-35. Um, and then recently, now you've done a lot of training in the F-35, um, and recently the 388 actually went down to Red Flag 19-1 earlier this year. Yeah. And and you were you were a part of that. And we kind of mentioned that a little bit in the beginning of the podcast. Um What's, I would imagine, was that the most intense training that you've had in the F-35 to this point? Because at this point, at least what we know and what you can tell us or not is that the F-35A has not been in combat yet. So we won't even ask you that question. <laughs> but okay. but uh, is that about the most realistic training? And what was Red Flag like with the F-35 and had you ever gone to a red flag in an F-16? I did, yeah. So my first F-35 red flag was actually 17. Uh, okay. Two or 17, well, I can't remember now. Uh, when the Rams, the 34th squad, uh, fighter squadron, went there a couple months after declaring IOC, initial okay. operating capability. So, yes, I did go to red flag in the F-16, uh, and that was nuts. Uh, going there i was a brand new flight lead uh so for the first time i could lead another f-16 around and mm-hmm. uh, i actually did my mission commander upgrade at 15-2 which was the red flag i went to in f-16 so basically okay. i was the 
mission commander for an entire red flag mission over 80 aircraft and oh, that coming is so up with cool. a plan. Yeah, getting up in front of hundreds of people about to go fly a mission and kind of uh, being that person that everybody's listening to and controlling <laughs> oh, the mission and debris. It was nuts and completely wow. overwhelming. Um, <laughs> but then I go in the F-35 a couple years ago to 17.1, and I'll get mm-hmm. to the 19.2 or 19.1. Sure, yeah. After, but, yeah. Um, going to, so the F-16, super capable aircraft, like amazing aircraft, tons of combat experience, um, and it's used all over the world. Mm-hmm. But the difference in flying at a red flag in the F-16 versus the F-35 was so eye-opening. Um, wow. Like, I remember in the F-16 just hanging on um, in the missions because as good of a radar as it has and as good of other sensors as it has and Link 16 and all that, you mm-hmm. still don't get the whole picture. You're still kind of listening to the radio and trying to figure out what's going on, and you're just not sure about everything and mm-hmm. who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, should I shoot them, should I not? You know, just all that... <coughs> fog and friction of war as we say one of our platitudes in the air force there's just a lot going on that you're not sure about and then i go to red flag and i'd only been flying the f-35 for a few months now whenever we went in 2017 with the 34th and i remember taking off i get out to the eastern edge of the air uh, airspace uh in the knitter the nevada test and training range mm-hmm. and i look to the west all our fights uh, in red flag or basically the good guys are on the east side, the bad guys are on the west, and we kind of fight that way. And I remember looking west, and I had complete situational awareness. I knew where everyone in the air was. I knew where every, like, surface-to-air missile on the ground was. I knew who was bad guys, <laughs> who was good guys. Dang. It just blew my mind mm. how much situ- situational awareness I had in F-35 versus F-16. It was... I'm not going to say it was easy. Red flag is never easy with the, the <laughs> amount of uh, yeah. bad guys that they have up in the air and stuff. But it was <laughs> night and day different in being able to accomplish the mission. It was just unbelievable. That is cool. And wow. Amazing. At that point, the F-35, you know, is, is brand new. The F-35A, mm-hmm. the B models, the Marines have been flying a little bit more than us. But we had just declared IOC this September before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was just amazing uh what we brought to the fight and still what we brought to the fight being so young and so new and what was what's been amazing about being a part of the F thirty five and being a part of the first operational squadron of F thirty fives is that mm-hmm. I've been on the like I've been given the opportunity to develop a lot of the tactics uh that we use in the jet, you know, like we wow. have the capability of the jet, but now we're trying yeah. to figure out how we use those capabilities okay. to, to be good. You know, it's mm-hmm. one thing to know what your car, like a race car, you probably know what it's capable of doing, but you got to be really good to figure out how to drive it well. It's kind of the same thing with a jet, you know, like yeah, yeah. you may know what it can do, but until you develop different scenarios and techniques and procedures to use that jet you're not necessarily maximizing the capability and so it's been really cool to do that and so the red flag in 17 2017 the f-35s did awesome i think all the reports touted like a 19 to 1 k 
kill ratio. Or uh-huh. whatever. Yeah. It was amazing reading about that. And to be honest, that was my first opportunity to really see what stealth yeah. brings to a fight, you know, and, the. Uh, F sixteen and, and you would F-16. know yeah, yeah, you would know flying fourth generation and yeah. fifth generation fighters. I remember there was one time I had flown way to the west side of the airspace uh to drop a GB thirty one, a two thousand pound mm-hmm. GPS guided bomb, and started flying out of the airspace, um not out of the airspace, but trying to get back to essentially good guy land, the east side of the airspace. Mm-hmm. And uh two aggressors uh, two F-16s being bad guys um, simulated a takeoff kind of out of the northwestern part of the airspace. But I only had one missile left. And I was like, oh, no, this is not going to be good. <laughs> I'm flying right in front of them. They're both taking off. I only have one missile. There's two of them. I'm going to get shot. Well, that's kind of when what we joke about in that 35 kind of like hitting the I believe button. <laughs> basically saying like okay stealth if you're gonna work this is when you're gonna work you know and <laughs> yeah. uh, so sure enough these two guys uh start taking off and headed eastbound and i was convinced that one of them was going to see me and shoot me and they were about ten thousand feet different in altitude and mm-hmm. i ended up sneaking in right in between them i'm literally looking straight up at one and there's oh, one wow. beneath me and neither one of them knew I was there, so I used one missile to shoot the guy below me or simulated shoot him. Yeah. And yeah. then I just flew underneath the other guy all the way back to good guy land, and he never knew I was there. <laughs> oh, so my God. It was wow. that moment when I was like, man, this stuff is legit. Like, this stuff is real. And the, oh, oh. I knew what the sensors could do inside the F-35 yeah. and uh-huh. the advancement that it had made mm-hmm. over previous jets like the F-16 that I flew. But for the first time, uh, Red Flag was what really gave me the opportunity to see the capability from a stealth perspective. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh-huh. then working, integrating with other platforms. And so what was cool about the difference between the jump from 17 and the one at 19-1 that we just got back from a few months ago is... Mm-hmm. It was a different situation for a couple of reasons. One, we've had a couple of software upgrades and different upgrades as far as that goes. But the other difference is back in 2017, all the F-35 pilots were very experienced pilots in previous aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were all instructor pilots, which is essentially the highest qualification in other platforms, whether it be the A-10 or F-15Cs or E's or f 16s and so we all had a lot of flying experience what was cool about this one is now we're starting to get guys straight out of pilot training so guys with less than 100 hours of flying experience after pilot training are now coming to fly this jet and they've never Jeez. flown another fighter and um there's oh, a couple wow. good things and bad things to come of that yeah yeah exactly wow. so that's good for two reasons one it's well it's bad because they don't know how good they got it. <laughs> kind of funny. I'm like, dude, I remember being in your shoes in an F-16 and having no clue where anybody was in front of me and how you can see everything. Um, yeah. But then the other piece is they don't know any better, which means they're not going in with any preconceived ideas of how things should be, mm-hmm. uh, which is really okay. cool because us yeah. as experienced guys, we're starting to build tactics within the F-35 based on mm-hmm. tactics in other aircraft. But mm. this aircraft, uh, aircraft is unlike none other. I mean, 
what it can do is literally like nothing else. And so it's difficult to approach these new ideas and new ways of doing things without considering how you used to do it. Mm-hmm. But these young guys don't know. I mean, they didn't used yeah. to do it a certain way. And so now they're going in with it with a completely different perspective. And it's been really mm-hmm. cool. They're, you know, coming up with ideas and ways to do things that older guys may not have thought of because they're kind of just stuck in this way of doing things from sure. their and aircraft. I, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but the, the, the leap, you know, of technology from you know, back in the 70s and 80s, you know, even 90s, like in, in to now that, you know, just helps everything along too. Because, I mean, it's basically like you're flying with an iPad versus a really old uh, computer, like a really yeah. old, you know, uh, you know, an old MacBook or something. But but now Absolutely. it's like the latest technology. And, I mean, that that's got to play something into too with a lot of these young guys because they were raised thinking with all this new technology as well absolutely. i would guess yeah. absolutely um another thing that they were raised with that we i say we um <laughs> you guys are roughly my age uh <laughs> was the ability to like kind of like customize things and change things you know like if mm-hmm. we had a cell phone um, and even if it could take pictures, like if your flip phone could take pictures, there wasn't much you could do with it. Right. You just could do whatever it allowed you to do. But now with smartphones these days, you can customize it and make it more efficient and make it work the way you want it to work and do all yeah. these things. And I think that's one of the big things too, is they're used to being able to figure out a way to best use whatever, best use whatever tool it is that they have. Mm-hmm that makes sense for them and they can make it work best for them and be efficient with it. Um, so anyway, it was really cool in 19.1 seeing these brand new guys be very, very effective and very lethal and play a big role in being successful on a red flag mission because the aircraft that they had is so capable Mm-hmm. their lack of experience was made up by the capability of the jet, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It was really cool. Really, really, really cool. And then wow. other uh, platforms, you know, other fourth-generation aircraft and even allied uh, nations have had some time, while not a lot, they've had a little bit of time to maybe experience what it's like to fly with an F-35 and what an F-35 mm-hmm. can offer to them to be better mm-hmm. And so we saw that more in this red flag is that other platforms are seeing how to better utilize us. And we're also learning what we can do to help out other platforms more. And so I think while the individual um, outcome and effectiveness of the F-35 may have not changed a whole lot from 17, I mean, it did to some extent, but I think the biggest Mm -hmm. advancement we able to work like as a team at Red Flag with mm-hmm. all the other aircraft and stuff. It was cool. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I hear, I read a lot about the F-35, and I hear how effective it is as like, you know, football reference as being like a quarterback. Absolutely. Is, you know, it's, I mean, without a good quarterback, the team's going to go down pretty, pretty big. Yep. <laughs> and Absolutely. so that, all that and everything you've just, you know, talked about. Just Unless you're playing baseball. Solidified. 
Yeah, well, it's most people in Just saying. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's wow. one thing to have a good game plan, uh, which yeah. we often do. I mean, the yeah, the U.S. is is great about mission planning and coming up with game plans and all that stuff. But unless you have someone to ensure that that execution is happening the way it needs mm-hmm. to be, um, mm-hmm. you just have to rely on on certain things. But with F thirty five's ability to kind of just have general situational awareness of mm-hmm. the battle space, they can kind of get the train back on the tracks if for some reason it's going off track or help other people with things they may not be aware of. So it, oh, wow. it's been really cool. I've been in the jet for about um, a little over two and a half years now. Um, and just seeing the like leaps and bounds the jet has made both from like just a machine standpoint, like all the software upgrades and hardware uh-huh. upgrades, uh, uh-huh. Um, where it is now. I mean, like when I started training, uh, some of the jets I w- was flying, they were so old and I was limited to, you know, five G's and 0.9 Mach and mm-hmm. didn't drop very many bombs. And now in the jet, I, every time I go out and fly, I can pull nine G's if I want and I'm shooting bullets from the gun and <laughs> oh, wow. uh, just like all the advancements in such a short time. It's, it's been really cool to be a part of. And uh, how's, how's the power difference? between the F-16 and the F-35? Because the F-35 has, what, about 43,000 pounds of thrust? Yep, yep. Um, Versus F-16 in that 30,000 range, roughly, depending on what power plant's in it? Yeah. It's kind of hard. Well, I'll say this. We need to do our best to compare apples to apples. Sure. Like a a clean F-16 with no pylons on it, not carrying bombs or extra gas or anything. Uh, it's thrust to weight ratio is amazing. Uh, flying a clean F-16 is one of the coolest flying experiences that you'll have, <laughs> but it doesn't go to combat like that. The F-16 yeah. is fuel limited and it needs right. uh, fuel tanks on the wings, which now limits your speed and uh, G loading and then carrying bombs on the outside and targeting pods and all that stuff, all that extra stuff you carry on it increases drag and weight. And so if you're really comparing apples to apples, talking about an F-16 going to combat versus an F-35, you know, an F-35, I think I'll talk about in your last podcast at Red Flag 19-2, they were flying with external stores, which yep, we're doing right. out here. But a lot of times mm-hmm. we'll go to combat with everything internal. Mm-hmm. And so if you just compare like, a clean F-35, which is still a full load of gas, still mm-hmm. carrying ordnance uh, and whatnot, and a dirty F-16, like I flew mine in Afghanistan with a couple of wing tanks and 500-pound bombs and missiles and stuff on the wing. It's pretty comparable. Um, I will say this, down low, like in low altitude in a high-density altitude environment, mm-hmm. this engine is unbelievable. Like, it is a beast down there. It is so fun to fly down there. Like, well, we, we remember you doing that um, uh, airfield attack demo at the Air Show at Hill Air Force Base last year. Matter of fact, the world's first yeah. airfield attack demo. And you were flying the lead ship on that, and just you were low and fast. And I mean, it was, it was crazy. And How every time I flew by y'all, I was doing my best to stay in afterburner so it was loud enough. But uh, not be an yeah. afterburner too long and break the sound barrier. I'm serious. Like, <laughs> oh, wow. we're like constantly on this limit. I would like approach the airfield 
added like a slower speed just so uh-huh. I knew that I could be an afterburner for at least 10 to 15 seconds and not get going too fast. I mean, down low, it is just amazing. Wow. I don't know if I told you all this, but uh, I remember getting back from one of those air air show demonstrations, Uh um, and I was taxiing back, and I just happened to look down at some of my avionics uh, where it shows how many Gs you pulled. And, you know, Uh I don't know, during the show, I don't know what it looked like, but we weren't doing very many high G maneuvers, really. Uh, but I looked down and at one point during the show, I have no idea what, when it was, but I pulled over eight G's during the show and I'm sure, <laughs> and I was like, what in the world? I had no idea that I had done that, but this thing is just so powerful down low. It's oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That yeah. is so cool. Yeah. I didn't, geez, that fast and that, all those G's. Woo, yeah. That's crazy. It's oh awesome. my gosh. That was Incredible hearing that. I gosh, I mean, I guess we could go on for forever. Really, I would love to listen to <laughs> millions more stories. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, I I guess we could end it there. I I mean, geez, I well, I don't know. I'd I'd stay up all us, night listening to these right, stories. That that does give us more opportunities, though. As as long as Jay, you're good with uh, you know calling us every night for an hour and a half story uh, yeah absolutely. I'm, sure, just, I'm sure lauren wouldn't mind right yeah. yeah not at all she just sent me a text and was like should i bring dinner up to you or are you gonna be down next uh, which by the way um we follow you guys both on instagram and you look like you're one hell of a cook and you take care of your lady pretty good <laughs> she is an amazing amazing wife and amazing person and that is as cool as it was to get to fly at all in the air force and fly fighters and fly that 35 uh still stay married to her she's an amazing woman and i'm oh, glad to go. have her as a wife for sure that's awesome that's awesome very cool well, yeah now you, you gotta you make sure cool she to listens to the, the podcast too. yes oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, Maybe uh, I can get her on here next time I call you. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. Absolutely. We'd love to hear from her as well. Um, but, yeah, maybe that's a good spot so you can get down to your dinner. And, um, yeah. And as always, uh, well, as always, this is the second time you've been on our podcast. <laughs> but, uh, man, we are so grateful for the time you've taken with us. Uh, we're obviously grateful for your service and um, for the sacrifice that uh, your wife makes. And uh, do us a favor. Tell her thank you for letting us have you for an hour and a half this evening. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. definitely. And, yeah, and I just want to say, too, thank you for your service. I mean, your your story is an inspiration. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 42 years old, so I'm never going to be a pilot, um, but uh, <laughs> at least an Air Force pilot. Yeah. But to anybody listening... And we do have a lot of uh, followers on Instagram and a lot of listeners that do listen to us that are young guys that want to fly and that want to join the Air Force and that want to join the military. And just, you know, your story is an inspiration to them. And, uh, you know, anything and everything is possible and you can accomplish anything. I mean, you're, you're amazing with, with, with how you lay everything out. And I just can't thank you enough for being on the podcast and, and for your service absolutely yeah i uh i was thinking about you guys earlier and uh 
listening to y'all's last podcast and stuff. And it's just crazy to think, you know, I was, I grew up in a town of literally 200 people out in a town with not even a stoplight in the middle of nowhere, Texas. <laughs> and to think that I was, you know, one of the first 20 pilots to fly an operational F-35, it just blows my mind. And yeah, wow. it, it's why I appreciate guys like you so much and like this podcast and getting out and doing things is because you're the reason you your kind of podcast and what you'll do is the reason that someone in some small town or someone who has an interest in flying will hear something about it and, and realize that it is a possibility. I met, I remember y'all talking to uh, like Texas afterburner and tech yep. Geek and some of those yep. other guys. I met them at an air show at McConnell and talked to them for a while. And it's, it's guys like you just getting that word out and, uh, being interested in flying and stuff that will help a young guy like me 30 years ago get interested in, in doing something like this. So I appreciate Yeah, that's you. awesome. And, then, you know, Texas Av Geek and Texas Afterburner are a couple of guys that I was just, you know, mentioning when I said that. You know, their their goal is to be Air Force pilots. Yeah. And they love F-35, so. cool. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, he has great. to because one of them has a tattoo of an F-35 on his forearm. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, <laughs> yeah. no. Yep, I think I you think better uh, get there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I think it's Texas Afterburner. Yeah, all yeah, right, it is. Hey, yeah, make sure tech, Texas Afterburner hears this <laughs> quick story. As an instructor pilot, pilot training, you never want to see guys show up and think they're going to be a fighter pilot because you never know. It's it's pretty competitive. <laughs> a guy actually showed up with Air Force pilot wings uh, tattooed between his shoulder blades on his back and oh. washed out a pilot training. Oh, so oh Phil, no. after. Tell Texas Afterburner you better follow through with that. <laughs> so I guess it's kind of like getting your girlfriend's name tattooed on your arm in high school. Yeah, don't do it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, don't do it. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. That's All right. Well, maybe he'll maybe he'll fly cargo planes. We'll have to put a C seventeen over it or something. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, hey, fast. We appreciate it again, and it's been Absolutely. an awesome uh, uh, bit of time with you. And yeah, it's awesome. And um, yeah, Tony Ryan, you have anything else to add? Nope, that's it. Yeah, Jay, guys... thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you guys. Yeah, no worries. Sorry, awesome kind of a one way. <laughs> Good. Yeah, sorry, it's kind of a one way conversation when you get me going on talking. No, about we love it. That's what we want, man. That's why you were on the show. That's why we wanted you. <laughs> All right. So cool. Y'all have a good night. I appreciate the opportunity. Have a good night, Fast. Thank you. Thanks, Fast. See you, man. We'll see you. See ya. Bye. Well, that wraps it up for another edition of the Ramp Check Podcast. I hope you enjoyed uh, your time and ours with uh, Fast, uh, U.S. Air Force F-35 pilot. What a great guy. Always great to have him on the podcast. And uh, uh, once again, make sure you uh, subscribe. Uh, share the podcast with your friends. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a solid. Give us a five-star rating and some comments. Share it with all your friends. Uh, the podcast, of course, is also available on Google. And uh, we are also available on SoundCloud. So check us out. Uh, if you're looking for us on social media, that's at Ramp Check Global. Uh, you'll be able to find us on Twitter and, of course, Instagram. Uh, if you're looking for me specifically, at TRumFollow, at RumFollowMe for my brother Ryan, and at 
Aaron Rumfalo. Uh, coming up on the next edition of the Ramp Check Podcast, which should be fairly soon, we'll be talking about uh, more developments with the Boeing 737 MAX. Uh, the software rollout happens soon. Um, of course, members of the media are saying, hey, it's awesome. And then they're saying, you know, well, is it enough? Uh, Once again, for the Ram Check Podcast, I'm Tony Rumfalo. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.